0: note of nothing, ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Since the chances you've heard the word juicing are small, what comes to mind when you hear it? The first thing that popped into my head was an otter riding a surfboard with sunglasses (laughs) while using a stolen vape pen. This whimsical, impulsive creativity is something many of us are familiar with, but rarely does it lead to any measurably productive outcomes. On the other hand, many of us are also familiar with studying, whether it's a subject in school, music theory, or our job functions. So, you may be saying, juicing is just another word for thinking outside the box. Well, not exactly. It's also not the name of the pattern on the otter's purple and teal Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting word, this jute thing. It's. it's I, I kept. I was
1: concerned that we had to make sure th- that people understand that it's a word that c- that's really acronymic. Mm. Um, and I, that's probably where you were going to start, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. So w- why don't you tell us what... is it? Is it juicing or sing Jootzing. Oh, okay. J-O-O-T. Okay, J-O-O-T. I had the S and the T switch. Yeah. All
1: right, so w- what is juting? Judy, well, you mentioned thinking outside the box. Well, Daniel Dennett, who we've mentioned before, and who is invariably one comes back to, is a, a neurocognitive scientist, a, a philosopher, and and someone who doesn't mind being edgy, and uh, has written many fascinating, wonderful books on all kinds of topics. Science and Philosophy Oriented. And his book uh, that I was very much enjoying a, a few years ago was called Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. And one of the tools he dubs uh, uh jumping out of the system, the system completely, right? It, yeah, yeah. Uh, and... What that means, though, is not the same kind of thing as what we mean by thinking outside the box because jumping outside of the system implies it sounds like, oh well, that that's easy. We'll just get outside of a paradigm entirely, and there is no box. The box is behind us, but he
0: insists on a few steps that are challenging, yeah, yeah it- the article you sent me was was very interesting because um, uh, sort of delineating this term um, is really important to defining the concept itself because he brings up um, several examples that people might jump to saying, oh, okay, well, this this is what you mean or this is what you mean. He says, no, 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 that's not the same as, as jutsing. Yeah. Um yeah, and he's he's an interesting character. They mentioned him in my my last psychology textbook, actually. The class oh. that I had um, the and that I just finished, developmental psychology. They t- they were talking about him a little bit. So um, he's he's had some influence um, in in the scientific as well as in the philosophical realm. Um, so Jütsing, the term originates with him. Um, do you think that? There's examples of that going back historically i think I think so
1: i was I was pondering this morning uh, bec- that very thing because of an article that I came across reading in the paper uh, New York Times and it was uh, an article about Th- Thomas Midgley hmm. um, who was a famous engineer-inventor, right? Not a chemist, more of an engineer of who lots of people probably don't know about now. But the article is about uh, the centennial of leaded gasoline. And the article is about two of Midgley's most influential inventions, essentially. One being leaded gasoline, and the other being chlorofluorocarbons, hmm. probably single-handedly to have done more to dis- to damage the environment than any other set of inventions, and that's a pretty big weight for somebody to bear. <laughs> Post historically, but I got to thinking about that and and jutsing, and it seems to me that as he was trying to evaluate and and talking to an, a, a, another friend who was significant in the industry, trying to evaluate what was making this knocking in uh, engines and that it was a problem with the, the explosions happening too early in the combustion engine and, and they were taking the kind of images that they could at the time of what was going on. And uh, essentially, he was far ahead of his time in how to try to do the problem solving, but he didn't have the, the tools that we have now, of course. And, I mean, he, he, he uh, apparently, he, apparently, he did, uh, he got polio in 1940 and was paralyzed from the waist down. And so he designed a contraption that, that he could use, pulleys and so on, to get out of his bed and put himself in his wheelchair so he didn't need any help. He also died by that contraption. Whether it was suicide or whether it was an accident, nobody's ever been quite sure. But he he had a, he was meticulous, so meticulous about his yard that people came from around the planet to check the way that he did his green yards in, in Ohio uh the golf experts and and all kinds of people well he had set up a <laughs> he had set up a, a system so that when the weather was changing the bar- barometric reading and or, and wind that might dry out the yard he had on his dial phone he set up a connection so first that would make a, an alarm in his bedroom that if the wind was changing He would do this dial on his phone that would start the water sprinkler. So, essentially, he had one of the first smart houses with with what he had. And refrigeration with the chlorofluorocarbons, which is what created the hole in the ozone, which seemingly will heal in 40 years, even though the rest of the planet is (laughs) in trouble. So... I got to thinking about this, and, and I suppose that one could say that he jumped entirely out of the system in order to uh, consider the combustion engine. But jumping entirely out of the system required what, what uh, Dennett says, which is first you have to know your field, your discipline thoroughly. You cannot just have this rudimentary glancing look at a field that you might be interested in or practicing in. But you have to know the field thoroughly and you have to know all the rules within the field thoroughly. And then you take steps to find your way to a new thing, but you can't do that until you know the rules and why you are going to break them. Hmm. And Mitch of so- course, well, we don't know, but it didn't think, think ahead to what the ramifications would be. And, and so, and as, as with anything else, thinking way ahead or thinking not just be outside the box, but rethinking entirely, breaking rules on purpose or choosing not to break rules on purpose because of a thorough knowledge in the field, that can still lead you into some bad terrain. It doesn't...
0: Yeah, yeah, it gets some it highlights the important philosophical implications of this type of thing very starkly, right? Because, um, you know, not only, you know, Midgley's sort of a a tragic character in a lot of regards, right? Because I think that in a lot of ways, we don't hold historical people to that standard, especially an inventor, Right. There's been lots of inventions that have um, maybe positively shaped society, but negatively shaped the environment. And then if you look at it philosophically, you go all the way back and you go, well, really any shaping of the environment is going to have some sort of impact, you know, even, you know, burning wood in a campfire, right, is is having some kind of impact on what's, what's right. going on. Um, and, and, you know, we we still use combustion engines, even though we use unleaded gas, and they still contribute negatively to to the environment and things. So you know with like you were saying, if you if you jump out of the box completely and you're suddenly um, in this expansive ocean, right, and you make a change, um, it can be difficult to interpret whether the change that you made is positive or negative when you're that far afield, when you're that far on the yes. on the cutting edge a change can lead to something good or something bad or something that is both, right? This is why science
1: ethicists, business ethicists, they actually exist. (laughs) They're people who do this. Uh, Ours more than seriously now saying that every, we have to have conversations about to what extent we want to think about what something we do how something we do might affect generations down the line. And we can go back to the the indigenous people's paradigm of seven generations hence. Um, we still haven't managed to do that apparently as a, as, as a as species overall. And so now we have ethicists saying, well, before you apply something, before you get that far, really there ought to be a whole lot of thought about whether or not it's going to affect those people or maybe there shouldn't be that much thought because if otherwise we don't survive, um, but that discussion has to happen and it often hasn't.
0: yeah happened. Yeah and so you know the scientific implications of it and the ecological implications of it are are interesting. but there's other implications of it as well um, and especially for the person doing the jute thing, right yes, I mean yeah. if you look at if you look at throughout history examples of people, um, radically changing the paradigm of science or of whatever, they generally don't tend to be treated very well. <laughs> no, because they, they've they upset the apple cart terribly. Right. <laughs> uh, someday that phrase is going to go
1: because people are going to say, what's an apple cart? Yeah. <laughs> right? People may already do that. Uh, because our metaphors are linked to the language of our particular time or our forebears until it, it Goes away, but for lack of a better thing, they upset Einstein. Upset the apple cart. So did Richard Feynman, mm. <laughs> an amazing teacher, amazing scientist. Uh, and and I have to say on, on the side, I should have I should have acknowledged uh, D- Douglas Hofstadter, who friend of, of Dennett, is actually the one who coined the word "juicing," but Dennett obviously gives lots of attention to it. So. But in the case of Einstein, someone who knows his field so deeply, intricately, that he can then take the next step and say, all right, these are all the rules. Which rules absolutely cannot be broken? Which rules can be bent? (laughs) Which must be in order to take us to the next one? And, And asking that set of questions... Then leads to the next step,
0: yeah yeah, and and you know Einstein was lucky enough to be able to see the fruits of his labor sort of validated within his lifetime and and benefit from that, and not all historical figures really did um make it that far there's you know there's a lot of um you know people who are historically persecuted usually by religious organizations that end up dying and yeah. solitude or sorts of things for, for contributions they tried to make to science. Um, but yeah, you know, you have uh, some other examples, right? Uh, you have Copernicus with heli- heliocentric- heliocentricity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, everybody everybody's observing the same sky for all of history. But just with the assumption that the earth is at the center of the universe right, right? why wouldn't it be <laughs> until somebody says well wait a minute no that that's not that's not what the stars are telling us mm-hmm. or um mm-hmm. at a junior barnard which is um not the inventor but the, the first person to use guitar distortion in an artistic way right up until that point um you know the limitations of the technology had been such that guitarists were always trying to get the cleanest guitar sound that they could but the louder they played in big big concert halls and stuff um their amplifiers tended to break up and and make this distorted sound and they said oh oh, i don't like that and then this guy finally said you know what i i do i think i can make this into a usable sound and then inspired you know decades of 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 musicians after that Yeah, yeah or um frank canova who was the inventor of the first smartphone, right? Up until that point, um, you know, all of the transistors and and electrical components that had been used in computers had been so big that that had been their only application. And then at some point he said, you know, these things are small enough that you could put them in a handheld device. What would happen then, right? And I mean, again, it took decades before that was ever realized by another individual how it could be used in a practical way.
1: And that's because of, I think that's because of the nature of, of knowing the discipline. Uh, I think that's really worth it, the heavy emphasis here uh, because when we say, well, think outside the box, it's usually, it's, it's an attempt to be creative and uh, just because you've, it, it's, it's, it has a kind of, um, it, spontaneous kind of feel. Somebody just well, think outside the box. Think outside. Well, th- th- that's essentially saying, well, break some of the rules. But Dennett, and Hofstetter, and, and, and this philosophical position says, no, no, you don't just go breaking rules because you want to break rules. That's That, that's, that shows no discipline at all. you got to know what all the rules are. you got to know the system intimately. And then you can decide which rules aren't you, in your estimation, impossible to break, but which ones can be bent, which ones can be actually broken. But why are you doing that? And why are you
0: choosing to do that and not break some other one and, and so on and so forth? That takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why, you know, Dennett um, talks about in that article that you sent me, um, what things aren't juicing, right? And one of the examples he uses is of children, right? Say, oh, well, children are jutting, right? Because they're they're not in the system at all and they'll spout off all kinds of creative stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, that really comes back to my otter riding the surfboard, (laughs) you know, using a vape pen, right? It's just this sort of thing. So that stitch comes to mind. Yeah. And I I was, I was wondering if you were going to give me some grief for it because I, the term that I used in the intro was, um, is that that type of creativity, um, you know, rarely leads to any measurable productive outcomes. And no, I thought you said, I thought you were going to say, well, you know, it depends on how you define productive outcomes and, and you know, what the purpose behind this sorts of creativity is. <laughs> well, and I was, I was ready to have that conversation, but we don't, we, we don't, don't need, <laughs> we don't need to, we don't need to, but, but, um, the point being that that type of, that type of creativity, that children, children are a hallmark of it. Um, I'm always getting, quizzical looks from my wife because I'm just spouting off nonsense like that right yeah. <laughs> i hear this word jutsing and i see an otter on a surfboard smoking a vape pen and, you know <laughs> that's just the first thing that pops into my and head that's creative it's creative um but at the same time where does it get you right and a really good anecdotal example of this i think i told you about it is um i was out shoveling the driveway this this winter and uh my my 8-year-old nephew comes out and He's obsessed with ninjas, right? So he's asking me questions about ninjas and I'm I'm giving him the answers and then he starts one wanting, wanting to tell me ninja jokes, right? That he's he's making up on the spot. And they're just all nonsense. They're not funny, they don't make any sense. Um, you know, I'm I'm doing my very best to pretend that they're funny, but you know, that's just nonsense, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he asked me, Well, do you know what ninjas eat? And I said, No, what do they eat? And, you know, he stopped for a second. And I could tell by the way he's looking back and forth that he's trying to think of what the he punch got himself line. Into a box. Yeah, he, he had, these weren't pre-planned jokes. He right. was just spouting off, right? And that's the childish creativity. But you know, I he said, "What do ninjas eat?" And I said, "I don't know what." And he looks around and he's thinking and thinking. He goes, "Kung food." And I go, "You got it." That's you know, I laughed. I said, "That's really funny." So, in that that's the one example, right? He told me a hundred jokes, and none of them were funny, and then that one made right. sense. And, you know, uh, Dennett talks about how um, that's not jutsing, right? Because that's just getting lucky, right? Everybody gets lucky. A broken clock is right twice a day. That's (laughs) not jutsing, right? So, and there's there's examples of that throughout history, right? People who um, have no prior knowledge of the system at all coming in and and making a revolutionary change, Um, but that's not something that can be... Reliably recreated. It's not a. It's not an approach. It's just creativity that happens to be lucky.
1: It doesn't acknowledge all the previous. We've talked about scaffolding and and verisimilitude and and these these concepts that are about acknowledging the the steps and the failures, and the steps and the failures in any particular field. And and that's that. Come in, radically change something, just because. Well, it can certainly lead to things, and it certainly has implications and ramifications. But it—it's not about um, valuing what might need to be maintained in a field, mm. you know, foundational knowledge that still works, or if you know, this is why it—it it, it takes time, and so uh, that's. Again, I, I think that that's important. I think you have to have a lot of time in working at or with the knowledge in the particular specialty or space you've chosen to work in order to then think about what can happen. I mean, in, the, in, the, in your workplace, I know that that happens. Some of the things you've told me, anecdotes without names, but of people solving problems that might not have been or or going back to a principle that somebody else was really trying to bend because the rule didn't the rule really had a reason for being a rule i was thinking about a, the number of i've forgotten exactly but it's a, a widget or something the number, yeah 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 the number of cavities in a in a mold in yeah, a mold yeah. and and that stays with me that's an intuition pump that's what mm-hmm. what then it talks about an anecdote a little tale, Aesop's fables, which we spend a lot of time with, right? You tell this little tale. And that reveals both a way that people generally think and sometimes a way to break that rule to go forward.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and Dennett really, um, you know, he he highlights the difficulty of this in the example that he he talks about, where, um, you know, saying that, like we were talking about the example with, with the kids, right? Or, um, you know, abstract art, right? People saying, oh, well, my five-year-old could do that, right? Well, no, the, you know, there's something, this, a five-year-old can create something that sort of resembles it, but it's not the same. And um, going back to Midgley and this idea of um, changes that could be good or bad, you know, the, the, the illustration that they give is that, you know, it's like going into a house, and, you know, looking at a wall and trying to determine if it's load-bearing before you knock it down, right? Sometimes, you know, you, sometimes you might make the right decision and, you know, it opens up a space and sometimes you might make the wrong decision and the house collapses on you, right? So it's, it's very, um, you know, it's difficult. It's like, that's why I think a certain, uh, um, you know, knowledge of the field, knowledge of the house, of what you're doing is important because, you um, you have examples that are, like we said, Einstein, pretty clear cut, right? When he first came up with relativity, that was, it was a little bit like the abstract art of physics at mm-hmm. the beginning. People looked at it and they said, this is gibberish. This is like scientifically and mathematically nonsense. What is he doing? Mm-hmm. But then as they started to make observations and they started to do verifying claims, they go, oh no, this is actually a masterpiece, right? Yep. Um, but in, in, in aesthetic arts, that's a much more difficult determination to make, right? Pablo Picasso, an excellent representational painter, then all of a sudden he starts painting this stuff that is non-representational <laughs> and people start going, oh, well, anybody could do this, right? Yep. Well, you know and, yep. and so then trying to determine, well, is the wall that Picasso knocked down load-bearing or not to the field of aesthetic art it's a different, more difficult determination to make than it is in the in the realm of physics, where you can run observations and experiments to confirm yep. a, a theory. You know,
1: you just made me think of it. This, this was a family anecdote, but it's it always makes me, uh, it makes me remember my my mother uh, with such joy. Uh, my dad's a mechanic. My mom worked at all kinds of factories, and and. What people might call drudge jobs, but jobs that needed to be done and cooked, and she, she just did so many things. And but she wanted the she often wanted changes in the house, and as with anybody, the mechanic's car is the last car to get fixed. And the, you know, and she would just go ahead. And and I was thinking about her with this topic because one day she came. He came home from work, and he found my brother and I and my mom using sledgehammers on a wall. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> she said, "You said we could take we could take this wall down. I wanted a bigger uh, a bigger uh, dining room and and." we're not getting these walls down, so I decided it was time to do the walls. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, what that was saying. And he's looking, and he said, well, did we talk about it being load-bearing? And and I remember her saying, here's where the beams are that are load-bearing. The walls can come down. And until we just were talking, until you said that story, it didn't occur to me the juicing, the sense. Applied to what my mother did because his assumption was that she was just jumping out of the box to knock the walls down to make a bigger box. <laughs> right. She knew that it wasn't going to bring the house down, but that aesthetically, it it was something that she, that she wanted.
0: Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> this raises an interesting question, right? Which is, um, is it necessary to be an expert in order to juice?
1: Well, I think it's,
0: it's now I can do this. It depends on what you mean by expert. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's so, and I think that we could do a whole expert on or a whole episode on what expertise is. Right? What level of knowledge is needed? When do you define when somebody is an expert? Right? How do you know when you've reached the level of? knowledge that you're going to jute like albert einstein and not like thomas midgley
1: ah no that's a marvelous question all right i'm going back to my anecdote for a moment to start there and work up um, my parents have we've lived in this house for many years they uh, they were the kind of people who paid very much attention to what was underneath the, the walls so to speak and where the, Pipes were and, and so on. Though so she had an expertise, an informal expertise of what the house, its shop structure, its form, its its qualitative nature. And so I think that in making an aesthetic break, uh, she wouldn't have called it that, but that's what it was. Uh, was based on an expertise of lived experience. Uh, it's not an academic expertise, but it's an expertise of lived experience. It, it, I think you, you know, if you talk about an engineer who knows has worked for forty years at something and can tell you which rules can be broken and which ones can't, but tries to break the rule but then says, "Yes, yeah, sort of told you so." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that's an expertise. I think experiential expertise, if it is truly based on learning as one goes because there are people who practice in a field for 40 years and you'd swear that they hadn't learned a thing because they just keep doing everything exactly the same way no matter what Mm. there are teachers who do that there are in any field you will find this i don't think there there's any jutsing available to them Mm. because i don't think they've kept up with their their fields
0: yeah, and this is man, this is where expertise gets really interesting, right? Because everybody's heard that that um, business term, right? Well, if you want to be an expert, you need ten thousand hours of practice, right? Okay, so if you have nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine hours, you're you're just a, a novice, but if you have ten thousand hours, you're you're suddenly an expert, right? Yeah, it yeah. totally neglects the qualitative experience of of what we are defining as practice, right? What. What determines practice? You know, I, I've I've talked about this before. Um, as a guitar player, right? Um, there's many types of guitar players. There's a lot of debate about who the greatest guitar player ever, to ever live was, right? And it's really a bit of a nonsense question, or at least it's not, you're asking the question in, in the wrong way, right? Because I think that you could probably define who the most... Um, technically proficient guitar player is, right? You you could you could find who the fastest guitar player is. You could find who the guitar player that has the largest the number of the knowledge of the largest number of scales sure. is. Yeah. Yep. Um, you could find the guitar player here who's made the most um innovations in a technological format. It's much harder to determine who the most creative guitar player is or something like this. But the point being that How you define what makes somebody the greatest guitar player of all time is going to um, lead to several different candidates for that position. Yes, it would. It's really not any different when you're talking about the greatest ever do it versus somebody who's an expert, right? Um, So I'm not an expert guitarist, but even like thinking about being a guitarist in general, um, there are times where practice means sitting down with the guitar and developing a skill, whether that skill is speed or accurate fretting or, um, you know, a a new technique or something. But there's also times that I consider guitar practice where I don't touch the guitar, where I read about music theory or I study, you know, tabs of another guitar player or I just actively put the idea of the guitar out of my mind in order to break rote patterns that have developed so that when I reapproach the guitar, I'm doing something that's fresh and different from the things that I just do. And so you could practice for 10,000 hours and it could be just this stale, repetitive thing. And maybe you master that stale, repetitive thing, but that's all it is. Um, but you could actively put the idea of... of guitar or whatever your subject of practice is out of your mind for months at a time and come back and have a much more important breakthrough than you would have had if you had been practicing 16 hours a day for those two months that you had been away. Mm-hmm. So, expertise and how you become an expert and what you consider practice and how you consider approaching a field. Um, this is a very complex multi-faceted phenomenon it is that goes far beyond this very simplistic business idea of saying well if you practice 10,000 hours you're an expert right, right.
1: that that's the simple, simplistic thinking and and Dennett himself says if you can find a simple expo- uh, a simple way to do something oh that that makes sense mm. but but um. What the, the, uh, in, in yoga, it's called samskara. You can do the same thing over and over and over again. And if it's if it's something that's not leading you to more development, it might be a rut. Yeah, <laughs> and that's exactly what you were just describing. Richard Feynman says, uh, but many other things that you really, unless you can turn off. The jargon of your own field. You want to know if you're really learning something and, get, and going forward and you've really gotten the concept down that you thoroughly understand. You put the jargon away, you uh, explain that concept to somebody in elementary school, and you f- literally work your way through. You find a child to try to explain concept to to see if they can get it and you're going to run into walls and it's it's not going to and you have to go back and you rethink something else again and then you put it together and after that can you put it into a story so you have a narrative of how that concept developed and it's put in a way that a third grader can understand then you go back to your field and say okay now i'm i'm using this jargon a whole lot more creatively mm. and productively
0: but that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a pet peeve of mine in my in my program is like in any you know when when I, you start out in the first two weeks you have a bunch of students and then you have discussion boards and, and you see what people write um, and even at the doctoral level there's people that um, write and you you go okay um so you're using a bunch of new terms that you read in the first two chapter of the book and you're applying them wrongly <laughs> and it's it's not accurate but it's got a bunch of jargony words in it um and those people they, they tend not to last <laughs> they, they tend not to make it through the program for for good reasons but yeah. um you know that's something that um that I I've, I've I've been <sighs> people have have said to me a few different times you really have a good way of of explaining something in a way that i can understand it like you don't make me feel dumb and you know i understand what you're trying to say um and 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 like you said that's that really is a good way of determining what you actually know right? right anybody's able of learning vocabulary but that's not That doesn't determine whether you know anything about what you're talking about. You're just demonstrating to me again why I said to you, as I've said to some of my other former
1: and incredible students, uh, you're a teacher. At heart, you're a teacher because that's how you approach things. You don't try to dumb it. It's not dumbing down. I despise that phrase because it already implies a whole lot of negativity that doesn't need to exist. These the books that no matter how humorously they were intended, you know, carpentry for dummies or something like that. It's a word we shouldn't be using, mm. and 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 it's not dumb to be able to talk to people who don't have the same jargon of your particular field. It's it's eminently wonderful if you if you encounter as I as I have been fortunate to uh, uh, someone who's plumb, does plumbing or electricity and you know recently we had a problem in the house and we and the experts didn't seem to be able to solve it and it seemed to resolve itself but they did not talk to me as if i knew nothing but they talked to me as i invited them to which is i'm somebody who has an expertise in in teaching in english some in theater philosophy but but i'm not an electrician i can i can do a breaker box, I could change a fuse, I can change a lot, I've even put together, rewired, put a fresh light in, you know, but I'm not an an electrician, and if you can talk to me and tell me what you think the problems may be, or how you're trying to solve those problems, without using the jargon to help me understand, then you're somebody who's really practicing well in your field.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I, at work the other day, they, some people were having a conversation and they, they called me over. They go, Hey, we were just talking about it. Um, we think you're the smartest person in the plant. And I said, That's <laughs> ridiculous. I said, That's, that's, I don't agree with that at all. They said, Well, who's smarter than you? And I said, Every single one of you is smarter than me in some way. <laughs> I said, Kenny's been in, you know, there you go with the names. This guy's been an engineer for forty-two years. He knows all kinds of stuff about. This guy's a sales engineer. I don't know the first thing about sales. I don't know anything about any of this stuff. Like, you know, I know, you know, I know some about a few different things, mm-hmm. but you know, everybody is smart in their own way. And they said, "Well, but, but as far as as here goes, you're probably the one person that knows the most about anything here." I said, "Okay, well, that might be accurate. I've worked on every machine." Um, I've done the quality functions, I've done the planning functions, I've done the inventory functions, I've done some of the um, invoicing and and sale. So I have done more of every individual job in the plant than anybody else, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. It is, yeah. But yeah, this idea that that intelligence or that expertise is... some sort of static crystalline thing that overarchs every aspect of of your cognition is is very flawed. It is, um, but it leads us back to the initial question, which is how what how much knowledge do you need to be able to jump out of the system, right? How what you what do you, a need a need know, right? you, you need to know? You need you need to know the fundamental rules
1: that seem to adhere to that particular uh, topic or field or profession. Got to be conversant. It, it doesn't mean you know everything because we know that nobody does and you've just adequately very much uh, rendered that as a, as a marvelous anecdote. But it, but it means you, you do your best to know how it all works.
0: Yeah. You know, the, I think that the most discouraging response, you know, because people do ask me to do this sort of thing a lot where, um, you know, they go, hey, what, what is this? And so I, I try to explain it in, in very, in, you know, in, in terms that people can understand. And then after I do that, they go, well, why didn't you just say it that way in the first <laughs> place? Or why do, why do we need all this jargon? And I go, well, because although jargon sort of has a pejorative association with it, the fact is, and you and I have talked about this before, w- words exist for a reason, right? <laughs> like there's, yes. If, if all of these advanced concepts could be explained with these smaller words and these smaller concepts, there'd be no reason for the bigger words and the bigger concepts to exist. What I've just told you is like taking a very compressed picture right it's like sure you can make out that there's a person and a tree and a house but there's no details right? right the jargon the advanced concepts all these other things are what now you can see the individual leaves on the trees now you can see you know that the person has glasses you can see inside the windows of the house and what the fixtures are and stuff you have all of this detail that allows you to to further your your exploration so, you know, I think that it goes, there's something that goes both ways, right? You can't, in order for, for this idea of jutsing, right? I, the box is very important. Um, yeah. You don't want to be inside the box, um, but this idea that the box is irrelevant or that, you know, anybody, just anybody can jump completely outside of it and know what's happening is, is also kind of flawed.
1: Yes, you don't just jump to jump.
0: <laughs> now, you know, as you think of action
1: adventure movies and science fiction films and all you know, sometimes people have to jump off a planet or down to a planet or off a cliff or but it's not because they were contemplating it. It's out about all the rules of gravitation and you know the, No, we No, it's it's an act of desperation. Um, agencies or or companies or groups that, that tell somebody to think outside the box because we need something new right now, that's not juicing, mm. that's desperation. Yeah, <laughs> We got to go to the next, you know, so some of the, you probably read in the, one of the blogs, anyway, the, so an example of juicing would be dry shampoo. Mm, yeah. Right. Or... Or, but, but what leads to that is you can't, you can't, you don't, can't have soap that doesn't isn't activated by water. Well, turns out you can. Uh, how how do you how do you get uh, have a taxi uh, become a taxi driver without being a taxi driver? Uber and so on and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, th- you have to know if, if mocktails. You have to know the, how alcohol works and functions, and what kind of combinations in order to figure out a taste that's something like it, but but isn't the thing. Now those are mundane, pedestrian examples from the business, corporate product world, but but it's still not about just jumping for the sake of jumping.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the scene from the movie The Other Guys where. You have Samuel Jackson and uh, I can't remember who the other one was, but anyways, the movie opens up with these two super cops, right? That uh, are just, you know, driving muscle cars through buses and, you know, getting in shootouts and doing all this cool stuff, right? And then they get on top of this building, they're chasing this bad guy they're on top of the building and the bad guy, you know, zip lines off and then cuts the zip line. It's The Rock, The Rock and Samuel Jackson. <laughs> they look at each other, you think what I'm thinking? He goes, aim for the bushes. It's like, yeah. And they jump off the building. And they just splat onto the sidewalk, dead. (laughs) And then Will Ferrell and and Mark Wahlberg, the other guys, these office guys, have to become real cops and solve cases, right? (laughs) And so that's just sort of a pointing example, right? We get bombarded by these hyper masculine, um, sort of representations of of impulsivity and and how it leads to these these uh, you know all outcomes, right? And you and I talked about off the air uh, last week about there's a, a negative article in the New York Times about podcasters um, and how um, you know it's this this male dominated um, industry where you know you basically have little mini Elon Musk's running around just um, spouting <laughs> off uh, you know Joe Rogan esque sorts of nonsense and you know and how people are sort of poisoned against it a little bit and um, you know and, and that's that's sort of the equivalent of being Samuel Jackson in The Rock, right? This idea that, okay, well, we're just going to get on air and we're going to say whatever we want, and it, it's going to it's gonna work out and it's going to make sense, right? Well... Oh, You'd go splat. We yeah, splat. yeah, you go, you go splat. You <laughs> splat sometimes, right. but you don't. <laughs> right, because, you know, real real life is not a movie, and, you know, getting on a podcast and, and talking about stuff just because you have an audience doesn't make you right about anything. And we're we're transparent about that all the time. We're regularly wrong. I started out this episode by calling it juicing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it happens. We're humans. It That's happens. what we're, we're humans. We we inter- you know, we switch a lot. But <laughs> it, it's it's a pretty poignant example of of this thing that we're talking about. Like like you were saying, just jumping outside the box, just to jump, it really goes back to the the childish impulsivity or this sort of hyper masculine arrogance, um, and. But, you know, at the same time, and and a lot of that hyper-masculine arrogance part of it are these guys that spout the 10,000 hours of practice. Yeah. But as we talked about, practice, if you're thinking about it as just doing one thing over and over again, is not going to help you make those groundbreaking innovations that these guys are looking for, no, right? Because you're not necessarily in practice.
1: if. If it's rote practicing, there's a use for that to keep yourself in your fingers in shape and so on. But but if you're not thinking about, but what if and mm-hmm. how come and what are the rules for this uh, 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 the thirds and fifths and so on, which means thinking about music theory and, and the, yeah, it's I, I I agree about the hyper masculinity that it seems to be involved with this. Uh, Dennett says in his book, he says the middle ground, roughly halfway between poetry and mathematics, is where philosophers can make their best contributions. There's an art and there's a science mm. to, to to the discussion, um, uh, and these contributions can uh, yielding genuine clarifications of deeply puzzling problems. A clarification of a problem doesn't mean a solution to a problem. Yeah, it says. Oh, Here's a let's shine up this problem up and cl- clean off the rust and see what the problem actually is. Uh.
0: So I'm going to go the other direction now. So we just talked about, um, you know, I asked the question, is it necessary to be an expert or what level of knowledge is needed to become an expert? Okay. And we, we we talked about how, yeah, your 10,000 hours of practice or your, your rope practice is, is not going to get you there. So going the other direction, I'll ask, is jutsing more than just the marriage of philosophy and creativity. So in other words, without any practice, right? Let's say I'm a philosopher. I'm somebody who studies this thing because I don't think you can say scientist. I don't think you can say artist because juicing at its core is jumping outside of the box. And outside of the box, there is only philosophy, right? Inside the box is where science and philosophy are. Or science and art are. Outside of the box is... All there is is the ocean of philosophy, right? <laughs> okay. So, is jutsing more than just a marriage of philosophy? In other words, trying to rationally examine the principles of uh, the construct of a pattern, and then being creative about how you approach it's it. a fine question because it,
1: you you use the the uh, metaphor of marriage. If a marriage Stimulates those who are married to become more than they would have been, uh, to deepen themselves, to to go to places that they hadn't gone, either physically, mentally, or geographically, whatever. Um. That yes, then then it is more than a than a marriage of things because it implies a, a set of choices to take risks that are considered, uh, that weren't necessarily considered, uh, by anyone else inside the box. The world goes on the way it goes on in the box. Somebody studies all those rules and says, no, this one thing could be different. If this rule were broken, it would lead to better things. I'm jumping outside by breaking that rule. And I think what, uh, that that Dennett doesn't discuss, and didn't need to, but for me to pursue the metaphor is you're not just in the ocean anymore. You have fashioned a sphere instead of a box, or a tetrahedron, and you've brought the box inside the sphere. Or the tetrahedron. So you're not just floating around in the ocean when you when you've juiced it. You have, in much the Cambellian way, you have taken what you've found, brought it back to your ordinary place, and therefore transformed some within that ordinary place. Not all. Mm. You can't ever go back and live there entirely because you're not the same person. Your, your process isn't going to go back. Some people are still going to do the process the same old way, but if it's if it's significant change, some people are going to be affected by it, and so they're going to be living in a different shape.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Singer is really sort of an emergent property of philosophy and creativity and practical experience Enough. integrating synergistically. Yes, of. yes. All right. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think that that's sort of reflected by moder- modern approaches to undertaking things. When you look at, um, you know, sort of cutting edge things like AI development or that sort of stuff, usually the staff that they have on board these sorts of things, you have scientists, you have people who are who are grounded in, in the practical um, and theoretical aspects of it. But you also see that they, they do have philosophers and lots of times they have um, people devoted to aesthetic design. You have these sort of um, multidisciplinary teams that that re- approach these things because you need all aspects of it in order to to properly develop the whatever it is that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so is jutsing a necessary aspect of being a polymath? Do you think? That's a really interesting question. Is it necessary?
1: To, to can you can you be a polymath and not juiced? Yeah. You know well, I think so. I think I think you can be a polymath and not juiced if you don't do anything. I'm um, to okay, be careful here. Yeah. On the on the exterior, <laughs> in the in the realm of changing things. Um, but I'm being really careful, yeah because, yeah here's if you're a polymath and you're an artist and you're an engineer and you just, I just look at you all the things that you do, but you do them you wonder about, but then you follow through and do it. I wonder if I can make music a little bit differently because I know the rules basically and I'm going to change this.
0: That's a kind of juicing. Yeah, and you see, that's where it's interesting because when I was writing the questions for the show, I I went through the same thought progression that you just did, where <laughs> the question popped into my head, and I was like, "Oh, that's an interesting one." Then I thought, "No, that's stupid. Of course you can. You can be a polymath without juicing." But it sounds stupid. But then I thought, "Well, no. Wait a minute. You know, I again drawing on on the psychological science that I'm aware of, and basic, you know, you well, really." can you learn anything without incorporating your prior knowledge and experience and humans as, as metaphorical beings, right? Can you, can you even conceptualize a new construct or a new field without putting it in terms of, of other systems and fields and constructs that you've approached? Um, I don't think you can. Yeah. And there's, there, you know, there's a, uh, uh, Dave Grohl, right? The, the, lead singer and guitar player for the Foo Fighters. He used to be the drummer for Nirvana. Um, He talked about learning guitar, right? And he said, well, you know, I taught myself guitar. And the way that I did it is I just thought of the guitar as a drum set. You know, he said, well, these low strings are kind of like the kick drum. These high strings are like the cymbals. And so he taught himself how to play guitar. And, you know, it's not like other people play it. You know, there's a rhythmic quality to it. and, And the approach is much different. Um, but that's, that's this idea of, all right, they're both within the realm of music, right? But you're going from one instrument to the other. And that's a very explicit example of carrying over knowledge from one to the other. But I think even implicitly, even without knowing it subconsciously or, you know, yeah, subconsciously, um, I think that we take almost everything when we approach a subject to learn it without Knowing it, I think that we take everything else that we've learned, and, and it comes with us to how we approach. Oh it.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that I, I, certainly any any new thing that I have studied becomes somehow affected or affects the previous context, which is which is why one does it. I mean, when I was uh, stumbled into the theater program where I taught. I was invited in by a marvelously dynamic artist, and uh, who then uh, allowed me insisted really that I learn some of the rules and the pillars of of of, that, of theatrical practice as that person had learned them. And then, what do you do with that? Well, I I spent years. I said being the theater mascot, but I I was practicing, I was directing, but I was learning, but I wasn't a professional the way my second born became in theater. I I noodle around with piano, but I'm not a composer professional the way my son is. Um, I don't have that knowledge of music theory, but the fact of practicing music on my level, Affects my day, affects my psychological being, affects how I interact with the world. Music is a constant part of my life. Um, I'm not, I'm not jutsing, but I'm I'm aware
0: of how that could happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, in my in my experience, it seems to me almost like it's easier to juts if you're not an expert. I think that, um, and of course, this is all anecdotal, just from my own experience. But like, I like my what I always tell people is I like to learn a new thing until I become slightly above average at it, and then I like to I like to hang out. I like to be a six out of ten on something, <laughs> right? And then I move on to something new. Now, when I move on to something new, it's not like I abandon the thing that I just learned, right? But what I like about getting to that level of something is that I haven't. Right. I haven't done the 10,000 hours of practice. I haven't done the rote stuff. I haven't done the things that, that those diminishing returns that, that get you to the top of a field. Um, but the sort of box you in because of thinking about it a certain way for so long, basically what I've done is I've learned the basic principles of a thing, and then I've practiced them enough to become proficient, but not so much that I've To use the psychological term canalized right Mm -hmm. this is the way they refer to it in in psychology is that humans have the ability uh two abilities right they have plasticity and the ability to canalize and they're opposites right plasticity is exactly what it sounds like. we have the ability to learn new things we have the ability to adapt to different situations Mm -hmm. um and so that's what allows us to learn new things and so when you start when you first approach something you're very plastic um very impressionable, um, very able to 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 learn things and grasp concepts. But the more you practice something, the more canalized you become. It's it's much like a, a, a you know, a stream carving a river through a landscape. But the downside to that is that if the rains of creativity come down, they all filter into that river and flow down that stream, right? But if you don't dig that river as deep. It provides the ability for little offshoots <laughs> and little streams to, to form in different ways each time the rain falls. That's where I like to be at when I'm learning a new a new subject. I want to, I want to get to a point where not every single thing about it is is impressionable, right? Because it, that's a it's a bad way to be. Um, you can then you're very vulnerable to, to false information to um, developing bad habits when you're first learning, all that different kind of stuff. So at the beginning, you need a very structured, regimented, practiced, well-thought-out, well-planned way of approaching uh, a subject. But then once you've mastered those concepts, once you can differentiate right from wrong, accurate from inaccurate, and you've practiced enough to to have um, some some second nature in how you approach it, I don't like to go beyond that, I don't like it to become um, an automatic thing after that because once it's automatic, it becomes very hard to then think new and in creative ways about
1: it. Yeah, well, that's, yes, that's, I, I think that the essence of, of what you just said is in when, when, then it talks about tootsing. And, and says, and it's only a couple of pages in this in his book. I think we'll be talking about his book off and on a lot as we go. But I, but uh, that first you have to render visible that which is invisible, because when it's invisible, you're not thinking about it.
0: Mm.
1: And only when you think about it, there's a. I, I guess this is an. This is an analogy that might work at least where we live. I, I have moments. so when I'm driving, there's a moment there's a there are times when you're driving that I don't notice the phone poles, the electric poles anymore. I'm seeing the vista beyond them. It's only when I slow down in, in my thinking or come to think about and notice them, but I'm thinking how intrusive and awful and ugly and in the way of trying to do photography and everything, are these these sticks, yeah. <laughs> bench and everything. They're not trees. They're not interesting like trees, but somehow visibly they, they go into the background. They become yeah. almost transparent. That's what happens with concepts we've grown so used to. I think that's part of what happens with, with people who are so afraid of social change. Mm. Oh, because it's got to be the way we want it to be, because it's got to be the everybody's got to adhere to rules. If we don't adhere to these rules, then everything's going to fall apart. Well, first, no. Um unlikely. And and second, maybe some things need to fall apart that just aren't functioning very well. And we just accept them like we breathe there. Yeah. Um and, and I think the juicing part comes in saying, Oh, Look at all those <laughs> giant sticks. What can we do about this? Mm. And I and then partly that I think that's partly what led to cables being and, and lines being put underground.
0: Oh, there are problems with that.
1: Um, so jutsing doesn't solve everything.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, we talked about Tom, uh, Thomas Midgley being an example of that. You know, jutsing doesn't solve everything. And um oftentimes that's that type of disruptive creativity is not received well by people who have um identified the rules as being the overarching need of society right um is society shaping juicing on the rise or decline do you think society shaping juicing well
1: i think it's it's interesting because this is canted toward what one most thinks about, but I, I think it is very much on the rise, but in slow motion. In, of, of the kind of on the rise that uh, a step is taken then those who watch it, just adhere to the rules that we always understood or thought we understood, or just did it because we were told to, knock it back, and then it has to rise more. So it's it's not a... I think this is important because it's not that juicing is a smooth... Nothing that Dennett says or Hofstetter says that this is a smooth, simple process. Mm. Uh, and, and probably that's... Uh, we wouldn't expect it to be. But social... Change is inevitable. I'm, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the, the Star Wars series Andor right now. But this is totally micro, and I apologize, but in in that series, there is a person who is writing a, a revolutionary statement about rebelling against the fascism the empire and and makes and and says, paraphrasing, that it is totally unnatural to have to constantly assert rules to control everyone. And therefore, it has to be constantly energy expressed on it. And that's why it eventually will fall apart. Any fascistic attempt sooner or later is going to fall apart. You cannot control what everybody reads. You cannot control what people think. You cannot control how they choose or have been chosen by life to live their lives. You can squeeze, you can push, you can write legislation and rules. That's not jutsing. That's the opposite of it.
0: Mm.
1: That's trying to put up a barricade against a tsunami that is always going to overcome it. Yeah,
0: I think that I think that that's a good point that you've expressed. And I think that it highlights... That the concept of, of jutsing and how it's applied on a societal level is is evolving, um, you know. Versus, you know, you look back in in the 1700s or the 1800s, and you had um, generally like single men that were that were responsible for innovations, right? You had inventors. You could point to a inventor of something or to a um, tycoon or something like that. Not that they didn't build their their empire's on the backs of numerous nameless people, but right. you, you're crediting a single person with an idea. that That's become um, much less the case. You know, I, I was reading an article uh, a while back that said, you know, up until about a hundred years ago, you know, patents were generally filed by one person. They said, now that's, a oh, 99% of patents are filed by corporations, by companies, you know, so it, it's, it's an intellectual property of a, of a, a conglomerate. Um, and I think that that driving from one end, right? So innovation driving from the corporate thought of many people versus the vision of one person affects jutsing in one way. And then I think there's the societal pressure. So that's the, the bottom up. And I think that the top down pressure, um, much like you said, I think that, um, how people you know people have always been averse to um, rule breaking change on a societal level, um, and in that way maybe it isn't a whole lot different than in the past, right? I think that you have you have organizations at the top who are um, some of them are looking to enforce rules and create rules to try. They think a society can be created through. Rules, rules and other people think societies can be created through breaking rules. And I think that that tension has always been there, but yeah. I think that it's sort of developed, um, this, you know, the question whether societal jutsing is on the rise or decline. I think it's, it's a little bit more complicated than it at first seems, but I think that you're right. I think that, uh, well, the other part of that too, right, is that, um, you know, these same corporations that are filing patents, Um, they're devoting much less money to research and development because it's not productive, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so without research and development, your ability to create new ideas, to juts ideas, declines. And you look at um, development, you know, through really from the industrial revolution up through um, maybe the first decade of the, the, the 20th century. You know, up until about 20 years ago, there was this rapid technological progression um and over the past 20 years certainly there's been progression but um what they in the articles i read they're always asking the question who's going to invent the next internet who's going to invent the next cell phone who's going to invent these things and their point is that um that sort of thinking isn't taking place at universities or at businesses because they're so focused on optimizing the current technology rather than creating. New technology. I can give you an example of this. I can give you an example of this again, uh, nameless.
1: <laughs> when you when you are uh, called into a, a formalized uh, session in a conference, whether it is, it is a superintendent's uh, day at a school or it is a it is a uh, day uh, faculty day at a college, and you're you're put in a room. And your directive is implicitly. Now, think of fresh ways so we can keep doing the same thing we're doing. Hmm. Think of fresh ways to maintain the status quo.
0: <laughs>
1: but make it sound like it's not. Now, that's not the, the directive, of course, that is given by the well-intentioned or disingenuous person, depending on who's But it's, But it's, it's essentially what's being asked for. Let's be in a regimented format, which would be, let's sit at tables, and now we're going to have discussion time, and now we're going to come up with X, Y, and Z in order to accomplish what we're already accomplishing, but for it to be fresh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> nah, it doesn't yeah, work. <laughs> yeah, and this comes back to, um, you know, you've probably you probably read it in the articles that we were looking at, where they were saying that, um, you know, when they surveyed teachers... Um, Some huge 98% of teachers said that um, they wanted to encourage creativity in their students. But then the same 98% of teachers, it was shown actually preferred less creative students when you actually started defining the parameters of what made a student creative. What do you mean by creative? Because creative people tend to be difficult to control, tend to be playful, tend to, you know. Again, if you know, it's just they're all over the map, right? They don't they don't fall into line. You can't fit them in a box. And in your if you're in a classroom with twenty or thirty kids, it's much easier to teach if everybody fits in their box. If everybody fits the way that they're supposed to, right? So mm-hmm. that's a societal implication of this, right? Is how are we reinforcing? Um, how are we? What is our message about? how we want creativity to be expressed? What's our message about how we want people to philosophically approach a field? Do we just want them to practice 10,000 hours no matter what that looks like? Do we want them to just, um, do we want to pay lip service to creativity but actually just have them play by the rules? It's a very big, very important question for how we're going to not only develop individually, you know, our individual development as human beings, but really the, the phylogeny of the species going forward, and that's the sort of, um, per, you know, technological progress and, and creative progress that we can make in solving the problems that face it. And, and social progress, I mean,
1: what, I'm sitting here listening to you thinking about the people that I am fortunate to know, you among them. who. Um, who are working to make sure that we don't stay on our our same stodgy path for the sake of staying on our same stodgy path. uh, My second born works in a dance, is studying dance movement therapy, which is a relatively new field. Well, not quite a hundred years old yet. Therapy through the expression of body, and it's not physical therapy, it's it's aesthetic. And uh, their partner, who's going to be a doctor, is in the next stages now, starting to be a doctor, but trying to apply what we know about being human with somebody else. And the dance movement therapy is reaching out to very marginalized uh, people and having to find out ways to reach them that a traditional um, institutionalized approach isn't going to necessarily enable. And so people in in every field who are trying not to do the same old same old for the sake of it but to figure out what are the rules that we really do need to live by in order to teach music or to or, or to have a viable plant of, of doing engineering work. What are the rules that are necessary, but what are the ones that can be pushed? And what are the ones we don't need anymore? Because wouldn't it be wonderful if we could break this in order to to get to this spot? Um, and I think about when Janet, when you use you, you all the music discussion. He says, sit down at a piano and try to come up with a good new melody. Hmm. You know this and soon discover how hard that is. All the keys are available in any combination you choose but until you find something to lean on, some style or genre or pattern to lay down and exploit a bit or allude to before you twist it, you will come up with nothing but noise. And not just any violation of the rules will do the trick.
0: Yeah. And that's what you're talking about with the drummer. You know, what you're, you're right, right. Yeah, no, and um, you know, that's what my last psychology course really really hit on was this I, you know, they were talking about how we don't call it developmental psychology anymore. We call it developmental science because what we discovered is that you can't study the development of a human being just by looking at the inside of a human brain. Humans interact with other people. So we need sociologists. They interact with, you know, So you need medicine, you need sociologists, you need economists, you need philosophers, you need all of these fields, all of these people to understand how a person develops. So, part I think that going back to our question about is is jutsing necessary to be a polymath? Well, I certainly think that some interdisciplinary knowledge is needed because, like we're talking about, if you have the system and you jump outside the system. And you're in the ocean of philosophy right <laughs> you need some other structures to draw on in order to make some changes right because nobody can swim across an entire ocean you, you can't determine well, if a yeah. wall is load-bearing or not if you don't know what a beam is yep. right yep. so this was a fascinating concept I, I look forward to looking at some more addendant stuff in the future and uh, i'm sure that we'll be talking about jutsing in the future as well okay. so until next time keep pondering